Father, bring us what we need from you this morning, whether that is a word of comfort, instruction, correction, encouragement. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I want to talk about the place of resurrection in the Christian faith. Clive James, a author, poet, broadcaster, Australian fellow, lived in England, you may know him, was unwell for many years before his death. In a poem of his, a well-known one, he writes of his impending death. He looks from his house uh, at a new Japanese maple planted in his back garden and the stanzas of the poem go like this. My daughter's choice, the maple tree is new. Come autumn and its leaves will turn to flame. What I must do is live to see that. That will end the game for me, though life continues all the same. Filling the double doors to bathe my eyes, a final flood of colours will live on as my mind dies. Burned by my vision of a world that shone so brightly at the last, and then was gone. Clive James believed that death was oblivion, nothingness, extinction. Just like the epitaph in the ancient world which read, I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. That is, life is a brief interlude between infinities of unconscious non-existence. Now, this is perhaps a minority view of what death is, even now, even today in Australia. Uh, whataustraliathinks.com, sorry, .org.au, in a 2021 survey, put it to people, do they believe in life after death? And 55% of Australians reported themselves to believe in life after death. The feeling that we must somehow journey on after death is widespread and hard to drive out. But what is this onward journey thought to be? Is it a journey to a dusty, shadowy half-existence in a grey underworld, as might appear in Homer's epics? Or is it a journey to face judgment and our souls either to rise up to bliss or sink down to misery? Or is it a journey to return to rebirth and to live again in another body as another person? All of these views and more are held today and were held in the first century world in which the Christian church got going. Uh, but it was a movement that began among Jewish people, and the Jews held a different view to any of those that I've already mentioned. They, or many of them anyway, believed in the resurrection of the dead. This belief appears in Daniel 12, verse 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. On this view, death itself is a return to dust. As God had said in judgment upon the disobedient Adam, dust you are and to dust you will return. But, in Daniel's vision, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. 
the oblivion of death will give way to an awakening to life again. And for the righteous, this will be a transformed life. Daniel 12, 3 says, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, like the stars forever. When Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth, he wrote to Christians, many of whom were not used to the notion of resurrection as God's intention for his people. They were people from Greek Gentile backgrounds. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, he's taking some time to answer some in the church of Corinth who were saying there is no resurrection of the dead. This uh, charge doesn't come up till verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15, but we are in 1 Corinthians 15 and we are, Paul is going to address that charge. It is important to Paul to address this because of the central and critical place of resurrection in the Christian proclamation about Jesus and in the Christian vision of God's plan of salvation. And so we're going to spend three weeks in 1 Corinthians 15, and I hope that, I hope that this clarifies and expands your understanding of what God has in store for all who believe. And I hope that it deepens and anchors the hope that you have in God. So today, the first step in Paul's argument, which is to establish the foundational place of Jesus' resurrection in Christian belief. So the gospel, firstly, is a resurrection gospel, a gospel of resurrection. So before he identifies explicitly for us readers the issue that he's going to address, uh, that comes in the very next verse, verse 13 of chapter 15, Paul says, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul lays out what he believes is the shared and indispensable foundation of Christianity. Chapter 15, verse 1 of our epistle reading today. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. This gospel, that is this piece of news, this announcement, this proclamation, is not just shared between Paul and the Corinthian Christians. He says in verse 3, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That is, the bullet point formulation of Christian essentials that Paul lays out here is one that he got from others. And so it is, it is a shared understanding of what the fundamentals of Christian proclamation are. It's shared not just between Paul and the Corinthians, but amongst all the churches. And these bullet points are these, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is to Peter, and then to the twelve. The essentials are these things that happened. Jesus died for our sins was buried, was raised on the third day, and appeared. Now, Paul's summary includes the mentions of many witnesses, some of them named Cephas and James, some of them firmly identified the twelve apostles, he himself, some of them grouped that more than 500, all the apostles. 
that Jesus' resurrection was an event followed by appearances witnessed by many is something Paul wants to underline. You can't extract this from the Christian gospel. He also wants to underline that this understanding is common to Paul, to other missionary preachers in the Corinthian church. As he says right at the end of this passage, whether then it is I who preaches this message or they who preach their message, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. So the idea that Christianity was really kicked off in the way that Paul says it was, with uh, a proclamation about Jesus' actual resurrection, this, that this was believed and preached from the very beginning, that's objectionable to some people. You know, some people believe there is no God, and so Christianity cannot have started with a resurrection. It's just not possible. And so instead, what would we say? Maybe this belief about resurrection arose somehow because it was a mistake. People got overexcited. Or maybe it evolved later, you know, as a kind of legendary later addition to the life of, of Jesus, who was, you know, a holy man, you know, a very influential and important teacher perhaps, but not the Son of God who rose from the dead. Even some who call themselves Christians don't like the received idea of resurrection. They dismiss the empty tomb as mythical. They claim that the disciples had some kind of inner vision of a living Jesus in heaven, but not an outer encounter with a bodily Jesus on earth. They regard those stories as somehow crude, as coming later. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, this text we're reading in the epistle was written sometime between 53 and 57 AD. Not every biblical book can be dated with such precision, but 1 Corinthians is one of those ones that can. It's 20 to 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's a well-secured historical conclusion. It's not controversial. And so, 20 to 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul cites a tradition that he had received and that was shared and agreed upon throughout the churches. It's like me saying, let me remind you of the well-established agreement about those things which happened in the year 2000, which I and others were involved in. People known and still living. It's how proximate to events this letter is. The resurrection is not some later claim that was grafted onto the original Jesus movement as a legend or a myth of his exalted afterlife. That Jesus rose from the dead in the Jewish sense of rising in a bodily manner from the sleep of death is a belief that is at the historical ground zero of Christianity. And this passage from 1 Corinthians 15 is a prime witness to that. There was no resurrectionless Christianity in Paul's day or any day. No Christianity without the seeing of Jesus who had been raised from the dead. This is the foundation that Paul will build upon in the rest of the chapter. But I do want to notice something else that uh, is in this passage, which is 
Paul's reflection on what meeting the risen Jesus meant to him, did to him. Paul was transformed by his encounter with the risen Jesus. Paul regarded himself as especially unworthy of seeing Jesus and being made an apostle. As he says in verse 8, Last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul describes himself like one abnormally, that is, prematurely born. The term might describe something that was both helpless and monstrous, perhaps. One who might cause you to turn away, and yet who is worse off than almost anyone. Paul is thinking of what he was when Christ came to him, a persecutor of the church of God, something helpless and also monstrous. Someone who needed mercy, but who was, in some sense, uh, repugnant. And yet, to this chief of sinners comes the grace of God. God does not turn away from Paul, Saul as he was then. He extends his grace, his undeserved, unearned favour, the gift of his forgiveness, his acceptance, his love. And this changes Paul. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Here is another testimony to the resurrection of Christ, because Paul... He was not amongst the crowd of Jesus' disciples in the days when Jesus taught and raised hopes in Galilee. He had not invested himself in Jesus. Quite the reverse. He had invested himself in opposing the Jesus movement. And yet, spontaneously, suddenly, as a matter of clear historical fact, Paul changes his mind entirely. He leaves Jerusalem bent on arresting Christians, and he arrives in Damascus blind, refusing to eat. He is baptised and he begins to preach that Jesus is the Son of God. He becomes a missionary theologian with apparently boundless courage and energy. This is another independent testimony to the reality of Jesus' resurrection. He appeared to me, says Paul. Paul has no other explanation, no other story to tell, and no doubt of what happened. It's also a testimony to the purpose and effect of Jesus' death and resurrection, what happened to Paul, that the unworthy enemies of God would be called to know Jesus, his son, and share in God's grace and favour. That is the effect of the resurrection, not just the fact of it, but the meaning of it in a life. And so what? Let's bring this into land. What should we take from all this? Well, firstly, we should take confidence that the Christian proclamation of resurrection is, firstly, it's original to Christianity. 
There, it's, it's not a secondary development in any way. It's historically well attested as the agreed consensus claim about Christ, the very foundation of the faith. He died, he was raised. Secondly, we should take confidence that the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection are for you. Paul says in 1 Timothy 16, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example to those who would believe in him and have eternal life. Jesus has immense patience. He has a care, even for those who persecute his church. His grace, then, is there for you, whoever you are. However blind and rebellious you may be or have been, Christ's ready to be gracious to you, to lift you up. Thirdly and lastly, if that is what Jesus has done for you and I, which is what he has done, then we should take a resolution that just as for Paul, God's grace was not without effect, so God's grace in us would not be without effect. If we share in the hope that comes of knowing that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, to the twelve. If these things are true and we know them in our lives because we have had the Spirit of Christ open them up to us, then let's make it our business to find out what pleases this Lord who has been raised from the dead and to not just find out what it is, but to do it. May his grace in our life not be without effect. Let's pray that the Lord would show us what effect it can and should have in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that death is not oblivion, nothingness, that is going to just be going on forever, but that you will call us out of the dust of death. You will awaken us again to life, and that just as you raised Jesus from the dead, so we too can have the hope of resurrection life with him and because of him. We thank you for that grace to us, which we didn't earn or deserve. We thank you that we've heard this news and we pray that by your spirit we might have hearts that can latch onto it and hope in it and believe it. And that by your spirit, your grace would go to work in us as it went to work in Paul that would not be without effect, but we would be changed, that we would be drawn into your service, that we would be made like Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.